White Rocket Entertainment. White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 417. 10, 9, 8, 7, ignition sequence started. All engines are started. We have ignition. 2, 1, 0. We have a liftoff. We have a liftoff and it's lighting up the area. It's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center. The second five is moving off the pad. It is now clear to the top. and welcome to the White Rocket Podcast, brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment in association with all of our great supporters via Patreon.com. I'm Van Allen Plexico, and this is a special bonus episode for our patrons, and then it'll be an episode of the White Rocket Show a bit later, in which I present the recording of my reading from DragonCon 2019. DragonCon allows authors an hour in front of an audience to read from their own works, uh, it didn't quite go an hour this year because the room that was scheduled for me was locked until about 20 minutes into our hour, so we had to wrap up early. But we did have a very good crowd, and I was able to read a couple of Auburn things because I always have a good Auburn contingent of Auburn Twitter and AU Wishbone listeners and others that come to my panels and my reading, and then other folks as well. And so I read a couple of Auburn things and a couple of my newest science fiction-related things to that audience. And at the beginning of this... I'm answering a question from a member of the audience who asks where I come up with the names for characters in my stories. And so when the audio picks up here in a moment, she will be finishing up that question and then I will try to answer it and then I go ahead and start reading in my as, as much of a dramatic presentation as I am able from some of my most recent work. So I hope you enjoy my reading from DragonCon 2019. What is your, what does that process look like? Is, is it similar for everybody or is it very different? You know, I don't know if it's similar for everybody, but David Wright, who's been on a lot of the White Rocket shows, he's a good friend of mine for many years. Uh, he's the one that interviewed me about the Sentinels on the recent recent White Rocket show. Um, he told me one time, he's like, and I don't mean, I'm just, you know, I don't mean to be immodest, but he said, you have a real knack for coming up with names of characters and alien races and stuff. He says, I wish I could do that. And I'm like, you know, what I do, because I love language, I'm always turning words and, and phrases and sentences over. And I read a lot of stuff like Shakespeare and all that has a lot of things you don't normally hear in everyday conversation. And so what I'll do is I'll just start coming up with names and names and names. I'll make lists of them. And then when I need a name or I need a certain alien or whatever, I'll go through it and say which one embodies, which, the, which of these in, in sound and flavor embodies what I'm thinking. So, so when, I, when I knew I needed four races, I, I, I want one to be just kind of gross and nasty and they're the foot soldiers and they got a blade for an arm and all. I, thought, I, I wrote a bunch down, I go, Scrazzy sounds good, right? It's got a K and a Z. It's got those hard German sounds that work good for that. Um, I want my, my elf-like aliens that are ethereal and just, uh, you know, uh, Dianari, right? That just sounds more like, yeah, it sounds like that. And... Um, Honestly, for the Rao, there's a race called the Tau in Warhammer. And I thought, I'm just going to rob that. I'm going to rip that one off. <laughs> so instead of T-A-U, it's R-A-O. So it looks completely different, but it sounds kind of the same. So I'll fess up to that. And I guess Phaedrons, it just... Um, 
But in, in all of them, it's just, it's just what's, what makes my ear say, that's it. The other, the, other, the other time that I've had to come up with a lot of names was for the, the gods mm-hmm. in the Lucian book and Baron and Baronet Carolyn. And in that case, again, I just made a list of like 20 names. And um, like I said, okay, this, this, this goddess is about waters and she's temperamental and tempestuous like a, like a rapids river. Vodina, because Vodina includes Volga, like the river in Russia, and the Rodina of Russia, the land, and it just seemed like it somehow subconsciously fit. So that's just an example of, of how I would do it. So that's a good question. Um, I don't get asked that a lot, but I'm going to do it. Um, okay, so let me find... I printed out a couple of things, and I've got the Decades book. And I'll do some other stuff and do some other stuff. All right, so... Uh, where are we? That's not it. I didn't sort this out well enough. Carry this stuff around all weekend and it all just jumbled together. Oh, I got to do this first because this is an Auburn thing and, and a lot of you guys are Auburn people. So I, I may have, I, in, we're indeed, I may have read this before, but I, it's very short, okay? Uh, when we hired Scott Luffler in 2012, John and I were still, John Ringer and I were still writing the, uh, the columns for the War Eagle Reader. We hadn't gone to podcasts quite yet. And so I took the beginning of Richard III and I rewrote it for Scott Leffler. Okay? And you gotta understand, this is when our offense was terrible and nothing was working. Okay. The tragedy of offensive coordinator Scott I. <laughs> scene, Auburn Athletic Complex. Act one, scene one. It's the only scene. Enter Scott. Coordinator most offensive. <laughs> now is the springtime of A-Day content made horrendous fall by this son of Luffler. And all the glory that did of late shine upon our house in the deep bosom of horrific losses buried. Now are our brows bound with tempestuous turmoil, our quarterback suffering from bruised shoulders and brains. Our merry shouts of joy change to stern alarums. Our delightful celebrations change to dreadful marches. Our once grim-visaged team hath lost its form, and now, instead of racking up touchdowns to light up scoreboards across the conference, we caper nimbly as if in Vandy jerseys while, <laughs> <laughs> while Bama runs roughshod throughout the land. But I that am not tempered for successful coaching nor made to call productive plays. I that am rudely stamped and determined to send fair McCaleb around the end on nearly every play. I that am curtailed of offensive production, cheated of coaching prowess by dissembling nature, untalented, incompetent, hired before my time into this conference of speed and of giants, and so predictable that my schemes and sets that even warhawks claw at mine eyes, why I in this testing time of conference play, have no possibility of resurrecting our fortunes unless to send Trey Mason off tackle more than once and thus admit mine own deformity. And therefore, since I cannot prove a winner to select and call the most successful plays, I am determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of Saturdays. Plots I have laid, inductions dangerous to turn Auburn family brother against brother to set player against brother against player, coach against coach, in deadly hate the one against the other, 
And if Coach Chiswick be so full determined to stick with me, to never draw the line, as I call plays so false and treacherous, this season should result in three and nine. It did. <laughs> no bowl game, no, nor even conference win, as champions so recent find they're not at top of conference but tumble to the bottom and seat beneath him turn blazing hot. Alarum, excursions, enter Chiswick, Earl of Jordan-Hare. An offensive coordinator, an offensive coordinator, my kingdom for an offensive coordinator. Man. All right. All right. That was a silly thing, but, uh, and then John gave us like three pages of analysis of the offensive formations. I do my part, he does his. It all works out. Okay. Um, let's see. I'm, I think I'm going to, this is all for Jeopardy, yeah. Um, I think I, I'll do a couple of things. This is, this is, I'm going to do this a little bit uh, from uh, a brand new story that hadn't come out yet. But um, Kevin Steverson is a fairly new military sci-fi author for Chris Kennedy's publishing company. And I just met both of them yesterday. It was really cool. And Chris is interested in my stuff, so I may be having some stuff published by his company now. They do really well with military uh, science fiction. And so uh, Kevin asked me to contribute a story to an upcoming anthology of short stories set in his salvage title universe. And the really the only unifying theme of his universe is that they use these gates to travel vast distances. Nothing really goes faster than life, but you can use these cheap, you know, gates, okay? And the other thing is it usually involves kind of salvage-oriented stuff. Like these are guys out raking through the bottom of the of the universe, you know. This is like Firefly, but one step even below. They're they're not out transporting stuff, they're actually just like salvaging the ruins. It's kind of like um, the character in the, in the Spider-Man movie that, that sifts through the ruins of the battles. Okay. All right. So um, this is called the Long, Crawl of Jon uh, the Long Crawl of Jonas Kennedy. All but unconscious, I dangled limply over the opening to the pit of hell. The sound, the awful roaring, shrieking sound echoing up from the depths below didn't register with me at first. Neither did the glaring, blinding orange light that flared up along it. No, I remained pretty much comatose despite all of that. As I look back now, I think it was the sound of the short hairs on the back of my neck sizzling from the heat that brought me back to my senses. The sound and the smell, too, and this near certain knowledge that in a few seconds, the rest of me would be burning. Awake then, awake and scared as all get out. I kicked my feet and thrashed about, and as I did so, my vision focused on what was directly in front of me, the eyes of my would-be killer. Black fire danced in those eyes, black fire and madness, madness to do all the things I'd witnessed him doing, madness that he'd seemed to enjoy every bit of it, enjoyed killing them, hurling every one of them to their doom. I had no doubt whatsoever that I was about to follow the others right down into that blazing pit, right into that burning, stinking maw, served up as a meal for whatever lurked at the bottom. Was it really hell? I have no idea. I'm not a shepherd to strive to make sense of such things. Not a scientist either, to be able to tell you what it really was. No, I'm not a specialist in either physics or metaphysics, so you'll have to ask someone else, somebody with highfalutin degrees maybe, what exactly that got off a big stinking pit was. The one whose opening I was hanging right above. I can only tell you one thing about it for certain. Death waited at the bottom. Death or something even worse, and I was two seconds at most from finding out firsthand. All right, so that's the opening of this story, Long Crawl of Jones Kennedy. As you can imagine, he does a lot of crawling in this story uh, and looking for revenge. 
It's, my, it's like my sci-fi version of The Revenant in, in 11,000 words. So, all right, so I'll set that one. Just want to give you a taste of that one because that's brand new. Nobody's ever read it or, other than Kevin and Chris. Um, let's see. Just going to do a few little quick things. There was another one I was looking for. Oh, Alpha, Alpha Omega. Yeah, I'm very proud of the beginning of that one. Let me find where that is. Here it is. I thought I brought more copies, but I think I've only got two. Dang, how'd that happen? All right, I got two copies of Alpha Omega, so... I think I've got maybe a couple more at my table. It sold pretty well this weekend. I sold, sold a couple in the military sci-fi uh, track. So, um, but yeah, I think I got a couple more at my table. You said this is one of your newer books? This is, came out yesterday. Oh. Can I help you, sir? Oh, okay, cool. All right, so this Alpha Omega, this just came out from Pro Se Press, Tommy Hancock's publishing company. Um, this book, I had been working on this idea for several years, like 10 or 11 years at least, in fact, when it came out, my wife, when we got the, the advanced copies, my wife says, you were working on that. We like we first met. I'm like, I know, it just took a long time. Sometimes they take longer, you know. Vegas Heist came together in two months. Two months. Uh, this one took about 12 years. I had the beginning, and I loved the beginning so much that I had to finish it. It just took a long time to figure out where I was going with it. I described this book, the cover, I think. I love the cover that, that, that Pro Se got for it. Um, I described it as Space 1999, if the Russians had tried to take over. So you have a conflict. Because I said, I want Space 1999-style setting, but I want there to be a conflict, not just the, not just the British actor, I mean alien <laughs> of the week, right? I want an actual enemy. And so Alpha is the scientific happy nice base. Omega is a conspiracy. Something's going on there. on Al and, it, and I said, well, if it's on the moon, that's been done, and I really like a ripoff. So I put it on Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri A is very similar to our sun. Uh, there's, I put a gas giant named Chiron, and then there's a moon orbiting, like, orbiting it'd be like it'd be a, on Ganymede, right? A moon orbiting Jupiter. And there's this one valley on, on this moon, Amphion. I named everything after centaurs. So it's, it's Chiron, it's Amphion. Um, the, the, the heavy lifting spacecraft that they use are, are centaurs. That seemed appropriate, right? They're, they're muscular, big, you know, they're not pretty. Uh, the, um, the military spacecraft are Medusas. The little transport shuttles are Pegasus. Uh, the little buggies that ride around in are Griffins. So I really tried to be consistent with the, uh, the terminology. When I had all of that, I'm like, well, I've got to write it now. God, I've come up with all these names for everything. Um, so it's... So the, the only habitable place is this one valley on Amphion, and they've built, and it's lush, and they have an atmosphere. So they've built a base there, and um, it's important to note for what I'm about to read to you that to get to, to, get to Amphion, to get to the Alpha Centauri system, there's, um, there's like a, a wormhole. They call it the pipeline. So you fly out at normal space speed, you get to the wormhole, you go in it, and it takes, I think, two months you have a month to get to the wormhole and then zoom and then like a month to get from there to Am Amphion. So travel from Earth to Amphion is measured in terms of like two months. And communications too because they send the messages to like a robot thing that goes through the pipeline and then sends them back out the other end. It's like a relay. Okay. So at we, when we start, um, the newest resupply ship with the new governor is on its way to Amphion from Earth. But... 
a contingent of Marines have sort of, they used an excuse, you find out later, to get on board. So General Tommy Douglas, Thomas Jefferson uh, Davis, Thomas Jefferson Davis, Tommy Davis, he's, so I got Thomas Jefferson and Jefferson Davis. Tommy, he and his men, the strike force, have insinuated themselves aboard the ship, which is all the ships that, they, that go back and forth are named after United Nations Secretary Generals. And I loved it because I could make this one the Trigiv Lie. L-I-E. So they keep calling this ship the lie. Yeah. Oh, you see, that's foreshadowing, right? Okay. Uh, everything was just falling into place. I had to write it. So um, this is on board the Trigiv, how you pronounce that, lie on its way through the pipeline. All right. So the first, first section, it's in, I think, it's in five parts. Hostile takeover, conspiracies, intruders, combat, and down the pipeline. So I'm going to read you the first part where... Um, Oh, I even, I even made little diagrams of the ships for relative sizes. I'd always wanted to do a book where I could do that. So. Is this an independent book or is it a series? Uh, it's a standalone right now. I told Tommy if I ever do another one, it would be called uh, Nova Alpha. That's kind of a spoiler, though. Yeah. Nova Alpha. So maybe I'll write Nova Alpha after I write Miami Heist. I'm working on Miami Heist right now. It's on my iPad. It's on my iPad right now. Uh, all right, so I'm going to read you the beginning of Hostile Takeover uh, so you'll meet those main characters. All right, hostile, part one, hostile, hostile Takeover. Aboard the UNS Trugivli Wormhole Corridor en route to Alpha Centauri A System, Sunday, 10 November 2097. By the way, I originally said it in 2067 and 68, and then I realized that's not far enough. We're too slow. It takes us too long. It's going to be another 100 years. So, okay. Uh, a wormhole is a hell of a place to die. As weapons discharge all around, super-dense bullets and, and vicious uh, scarring plasma blasts gouging away at the precious inches of steel separating them all from the airless void and from gruesome death by decompression, General Tommy Davis reflected that in hindsight, deepest interstellar space probably had not been the wisest choice of locales in which to start a mutiny. But start it he had. There had simply been no other way, and now it was win or die. The sounds of gunfire and shouting reverberated from every surface as the strike force troopers continued to press the attack, trying to push back the ship's crew and the others who'd chosen to fight on that side. Though he'd never have admitted it to anyone, he felt equal measures of pride and pain in watching his elite forces at work. Pride in their skill and efficiency and pain from the atrocious losses they were suffering. A number of his Marines lay dead or dying already, and precious little ground had been gained for it. The firefight had been raging for nearly 20 minutes when the damage being dealt to the spacecraft seemed to Davis' to Davis's senses to reach a critical mass. Pipes ruptured, steam gushed out to fill the corridors. Wiring exploded in showers of sparks and flame. One compartment decompressed, its airlock tearing loose from its hinges and hurling itself and the room's inhabitants into the airless depths of the wormhole. The crew members' screams were cut short in an instant as the last of the air was ripped from their lungs. Their bodies tumbled in the ship's wake through a formless nightmare void. Would they ever re-enter normal space, and if so, where? Or would they simply fall through this bizarre, unnatural realm for the rest of eternity? No one knew, for no one lost in a wormhole had ever been seen again. Davis gritted his teeth, unsure which worried him more, the fearsome weapons blasts, the hellish void, void outside, or the terrifyingly fragile fusion engine housed a mere few hundred meters away at the opposite end of the lie. 
The fusion drive operated by heating hydrogen isotopes to 600 million Kelvin and containing the resulting plasma within precisely tuned magnetic fields. That's important later, by the way. Uh, I don't drop science knowledge like this unless I have to. <laughs> Part of his mind rebelled at the very thought of such an engine. Nature was being placed under enormous and entirely artificial stress in order to serve the needs and wishes of man. It all seemed horrifically dangerous enough on its own when everything around it was going smoothly. He could scarcely imagine the looks on the faces of the engineers back on Earth if they knew a full-scale war had broken out so close to their delicate, deadly creation. A war, Davis thought bitterly, turning the small but potent word over and over in his mind. I really didn't want a war. Yet a war was just what he had on his hands now. It wasn't supposed to go down this way. A mutiny, yes, a quick surgical strike to remove most of the command staff of the vessel and take custody of the United Nations bureaucrats and politicians residing in the VIP passenger berths. It should have all gone so smoothly. His team was, after all, the elite strike force, the most respected and feared of all the UN military armed special ops forces. It should have been a cakewalk. Turned out those bureaucrats and politicians could put up a heck of a fight when their backs were pushed to the wall, and especially when there was literally nothing on the other side of that wall, nothing but the void of the wormhole. Clearly the bureaucrats had smuggled weapons on board. With their lofty government positions and titles, there was little they couldn't get away with if they wanted to. Given the current political climate back in the General Assembly, it was, in retrospect, hardly surprising. Even so, Davis hadn't fully anticipated it, and that fact galled him. Now a number of his men and women lay dead, and the UNS Trigovlai had become a shooting gallery, the Wild West in high noon, here in the darkness between the stars. Um, so they fight, and I'm going to skip over just a little bit because I want to get to a part that I also want to um, uh, want to hit for you. Okay. Meanwhile, uh, at Base Alpha on January 12, 2098, it's like waiting to go to the gallows, he couldn't help but think. Governor Alfred Canu peered nervously into the nighttime sky and imagined he glimpsed high above a sparkle from the hull of the vast spacecraft pulling into orbit over Amphion. The spacecraft carrying my replacement, he thought. It was silly, of course, both the thought that he could actually see the vessel and the odd fear gnawing at his insides. True, there had been no communications from the ship once it had, uh, since it had ed exited the wormhole from Earth, two months' voyage away from Alpha Centauri A, and that was worrying. But accidents and technical glitches still happened from time to time, and the observatory reported that everything that, that the lie had done since entering on this, since emerging on this side of the hyperspace pipeline had been textbook perfect. Clearly, the ship was still under some sort of intelligent control. So Kanu inhaled deeply and reassured himself for the thousandth time that soon he would be peacefully handing over command of Base Alpha to a new civilian administrator and shortly afterward would be on his way back home to a happy retirement, maybe on a nice beach somewhere, someplace far away from the United Nations politics and the perpetual squab squabbling that went along with it. The payments his new associates had promised would surely make that retirement much, much sweeter than it would have been for the average former government bureaucrat, of course. Um, so he is waiting on them to come down, and then I want to hit one more thing. Okay. The security chief had stepped to one side, listening intently to a report coming over his earpiece. After it was completed, security chief Acevedo eyed the others, his face sober. The folks at the observatory say those aren't Pegasus passenger shuttles coming down. They're centaurs, 
He squinted in the blackness overhead, trying to see what was up there. Centaurs, Canu shrugged, affecting, affecting nonchalance. So, and they're dark green and gray. Marine colors, uh, Major Kawaze is the military uh, commander there, for now. Kawaze frowned and glanced at Kanu, who was becoming visibly nervous. Yes, Major? The governor forced a business-like expression on his face, but clearly he was at least troubled now, as troubled now as the others. Uh, Kawaze shook her head. I don't know, this whole thing, it just doesn't smell right to me. Good, Kanu replied. I was afraid I was the only one. He laughed a staccato, humorless laugh. <laughs> I felt like I've been waiting for an execution all day. Chief Acevedo pursed his lips but said nothing for a few seconds. Then he grunted, clicked his comm link, and put in a call to his security office. An emergency call. The three very unexpected combat-outfitted centaurs roared down on vectored thrust into the lush Rhodus Valley, the only habitable part of the moon, Amphion, and descended toward the landing area just, just beyond the sprawling base alpha, lights dazzling as they penetrated the darkness. Rugged and powerful, rather than sleek and nimble, the centaurs were the workhorse air and space vehicles preferred by Alpha's personnel for heavy lifting and medium-sized cargo hauling operations. Tough and dependable, they'd been the backbone of the construction operation that had built the base, and they were still the best-loved vehicles of most of the base's occupants. Now, however, the three centaurs descending onto Alpha's landing pad from the interstellar vessel orbiting high above conjured different emotions altogether among the tiny collection of individuals who watched them land. Governor Canu chewed his bottom lip, and Kawaze caught herself fingering not her ponytail, but her sidearm. Acevedo looked on in stony silence, but his tension was obvious. The three ships settled to the hard surface, and their engines slowly, re slowly revved down. The three Alphans watched and waited, holding their breaths. Then, after an interminable wait, the hatches of all three centaurs slid open simultaneously. Lights, blinding in their intensity, flared from within. Canu opened his mouth to utter words of welcome and greetings, but he never got a syllable out. From each of the cargo compartments spilled dozens of heavily armed and armored troops. Marines, Canu realized as the soldiers stepped fully into view, weapons in hand. In mere seconds, the Marines had spread across the landing pad, established a perimeter, and taken up defensive positions. Each carried a rifle. Some were automatic slug throwers. Others were energy or particle beam projectors. They didn't exactly aim their guns at the base's personnel, but then again, they didn't exactly not either. Canu and the others could only stand and watch, overwhelmed with surprise and fear. Acevedo had been prepared for something unusual, but not this. Not dozens of actual strike force Marines, heavily armed and ready for combat. He looked to his own men who were standing by, shocked and puzzled as anyone else, and he hesitated. Could he order them to open fire on UN Marines? What madness was this? Before he could do anything, a Marine officer marched straight up to him, singling him out of the small crowd and addressed him. Chief Manuel Acevedo, the man asked. He was tall and muscular like most of the Marines with very short blonde hair. Acevedo nodded dumbly. I am Major Closer. I'd like you to have your force stand down. I, I what? Acevedo blinked, looked away for a moment, then back into the striking blue eyes of the major. There is no need for, vi for violence, the blonde major said. We appreciate you and your base personnel being prepared to defend the base. We respect that, but we will open fire on you if you, if you force us to. If we force you? Acevedo halted in mid-sentence. He looked at the Marines with their heavy weaponry, then at his own people, who generally spent way more time in the cantina than the shooting range. Gritting his teeth, he nodded once to close it and then issued the order for his people to stand down. On the other side of them, the Alpha security guards lowered their weapons and the Marines advanced. 
Thank you, Chief, Closer said with a, he sort of sounded like an Schwarzenegger type guy, uh, <laughs> said with a tight smile and a nod. Then the blonde man turned on his heel and marched back over the nearest centaur. He said something over his comm link, and a moment later, two more men emerged from the hatch. What's going on here, Kawaze demanded as Marines took up spots on either side of them. When no one replied, she drew herself up to full height and asserted forcefully, I am Major Miyoko Kawaze of the UN's United, uh, Uni Unified Forces. You will answer me. One of the troopers glanced her way and said, The general will brief you shortly, Major. The general? General who? General Tommy Davis came the booming voice of one of the men who had just disembarked from the centaur. He had short, grayish, graying, blondish hair and handsome, if rough, features. He wore a pistol and a holder at his side. He was helping support the other man who had emerged with him, and the others could, now that, could, could tell now that that man had been injured. Davis handed him over to another Marine and nodded respectfully to Governor Canu. He wore a look of intense concentration as he glanced about, scrutinizing the surroundings. Canu gathered himself up and stepped forward, frowning. What's the meaning of this, General? Where is un incoming Governor Rubinska? Rubinska is dead, Davis stated coldly, still looking off to one side. What? How? We have other dead and wounded, too. We, we had some trouble on the ship. <laughs> the General's dark eyes settled on Canu, now seeming to bore right through him. Dead and wounded? Canu shivered. What sort of trouble? It's been settled. The main thing now is to get squared away here and start bringing our people down. I'll explain in due time. But for now, and he reached out, clasping the bewildered Governor Canu's hand, it is a pleasure to meet you, Governor. He smiled tightly. And I formally accept the transfer of authority. <laughs> Canu blinked, his mouth working soundlessly. He looked desperately at Kawaze, but she was clearly just as startled and confused as him. Finally, he managed, transfer of authority to you? You can't. I can and I have, Davis replied curtly. He turned back to his troops and barked, start unloading. I want this entire facility secured in 10 minutes. He looked up at one of the light towers then, his eyes touching momentarily on a tiny sphere that was likely a surveillance camera. Returning his attention to Canu and the others, he announced, Base Alpha is now under martial law. On behalf of the UN Strike Force, I hereby take up the role of military governor until former, further notice. Major Kawaze is the ranking officer of the UN forces already on Amphion. I'll need you to see you in my office in an hour. Your office, Acevedo asked. Yes. Davis glanced at Acevedo's jacket insignias and nodded. You too, Chief. We have a lot to discuss. Then he turned back toward his men. Governor Canu found his voice. What about me? Davis didn't even look back. I'd like my office cleared within the hour, please. <laughs> All right. So that's Alpha Omega. Hopefully you get the sense of uh, where that's going. Uh, let's see. I'll do... Um, let me see. Do you? I, I probably got time for one more thing. So, would you rather me do uh, some from Caroline or some from uh, one of the Auburn books? Caroline's not going to be spoiler, right? It, I, if I did the very beginning. Okay. Would the Auburn book be a spoiler? Yeah. For for 2010. Let me see if something if the beginning jumps out that I want to. I haven't read two in the second one yet. Okay. Let me let me. Get your account. Sorry. No, I'm I'm asking for your. All right, I'll, I'll read the very beginning just so you see where it starts at. There's actually a letter from Miran at the beginning, which is the first time I've ever had any part of one of these three books that's not first person from the main character. But it, it, it's one of those things where there's, there are things you can't do in first person, which is like tell something the main character doesn't know. 
And so I had to break the thing this one time for Marana to explain something that you kind of need to know up front. I just felt like it was necessary. All right, let me do the very beginning of it then. One. By the way, this is the first time I've ever written a female character from the first-person point of view, so that was a very interesting challenge. <laughs> I knew lots of people would be mad at me if I screwed this up, so I tried really hard. And then that deep, endless night faded, and I was awake. Though the cold stone beneath me made me wish I were still asleep, still wreathed in reassuring dreams and not dark, disturbing reality. By the way, you'll notice there's a difference in the type of writing I do in each thing. I have a separate style for everything I do. So I don't have just one style. I have the style that fits the property. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, my eyes opened. I rolled over and sat up. The black of sleep had vanished, but now I found myself surrounded entirely by gray. Only the faintest of dim ambient lighting allowed me to see anything at all. Instinctively, my hand went for my sword at my hip. Instead, my numb fingers brushed only the cold silver metal and the black leather of the warrior's garb I always wore, that which was a part of my aspect. My sword and its scabbard were missing. Not panic, not yet if at all, I being who I am, but a measure of concern took root within my mind and began to grow. I spoke the question aloud, where am I? My voice came back to me as a flattened echo. It sounded hollow to me, unreal. It put me further into a state of unease. My first and instinctive reaction is always to go on the offensive. Lacking my sword, I reached out again, patting the hard surface on either side of me. As I suspected, my axe was missing as well. My axe. Anger rose within me now. I had been disarmed against my will. Was I imprisoned? Had I been abducted? Was I being detained somehow? If so, by whom? questions. I hate questions. I prefer action, direct, unyielding action. Mysteries to me are an annoyance. Show me my objective, reveal to me my adversaries, and I will deal with them in short order. But this, infuriating, impossible. Was I not Caroline, goddess of the golden city, silver lady of the icy waste, respected by all and rightly feared by most? I took some slight comfort in the fact that I at least knew who I was. That's a little tribute to Roger's last name. But how had I come to be here in this tiny cell? That I could not remember. Enough of this. I stood and looked about. The greatest extended in every direction. It was like being lost in a dense fog bank at twilight. Walls, floor, ceiling, all were utterly obstructed. Only the bench-like raised stone surface upon which I had lain was visible, and it appeared hazy and indistinct despite being so close by. Effectively blind, I raised my right arm in front of me, Moving my hand about, I felt nothing, touched nothing. Frowning, I turned in a slow circle until my fingertips brushed against more of the cold, smooth stone to my left, this time in the form of a wall. Closing my hand, I wrapped my knuckles against it. Hard, solid. I followed it along slowly for a short distance and came to a corner. The wall turned left and I followed it again. Another corner, quickly. I continued this action until I had traced the entire perimeter of the small, square space that confined me. It was a cell. That much was obvious. Someone had locked me in a cell. Furious, I brought my right hand up again, but this time as I did so, I reached within myself, reached for the power, the cosmic energy that flowed from the fountain of my city and radiated outward across all the levels of the above and all the depths of the below, empowering those of my kind, enabling us to feel the texture of the world around us, and if we desired, tear it asunder, creating portals for travel amongst those realms. My intentions were to create a doorway to another dimension and simply walk through it and out of this confinement. I reached for the power, but it did not answer my call. 
To my surprise, no portal materialized before me, not even the usual sparkle in the air that preceded it. To my greater astonishment, I could not even feel the power coursing around me. Still, I was not afraid. Angry, yes. Enormously angry. I wanted my axe. One way or another, it could have freed me, either by ripping open the walls, separating this universe from another, or by simply smashing the actual stone walls that confined me. No wonder my captors had taken it. One option yet remained. Closing my eyes, I laid my right hand flat against the nearest wall and breathed in and out slowly, reaching again for the power. I intended to draw what I could from the environment around me and allow it to flow back out, channeling it in the way I am able. Cold, cold. Seconds passed, but the temperature in the room did not drop in any noticeable way. No ice formed in the wall. The constant, nearly subliminal, subliminal and low-level buzz that marked the power, always awaiting my call, had vanished. In its place reigned only silence and an awful empty void within myself where it had dwelt. So she's trapped somewhere and can't even access the power. She's got to find a way out, got to be resourceful. And that's what she looks like, by the way, as, as I was describing her. So, all right, I guess we got about seven minutes left and I do want to do one. Let me see, just a little bit here. Oh yeah. So this is something we wrote back, John and I worked on, I wrote this part, back in, um, I think 2013. No, actually it was 2011, 2012, with um, when Trooper Taylor was our, was our receivers coach and was waving the flag and everything. Uh, to, yeah, 2011, 209. Twitter Trooper Taylor Spy, a very short novel of espionage and crouton. Um, oh, that's a little introduction. You don't need that. One of our recruits is a mole. The haggard assistant coach collapsed on the floor, bleeding from multiple gunshot wounds to the abdomen that would have killed a lesser coach, but not an SEC assistant because this is the SEC, by God. <laughs> Gene Chiswick leapt to his feet and ran around his trophy-laden desk, which was trophy-laden because this is the SEC, by God. Trooper, Trooper, speak to me. You say one of our recruits was injured playing whack-a-mole? <laughs> trooper paused in his desperate efforts to staunch the bleeding with a towel. Reaching, the towel, get it? Reaching up with his bloody hands and just as defensive coordinator Brian Van Gorder ran into the room, grasped Chiswick by the collar. No, you fool, a mole. One of our recruits is a mole. <clears throat> trooper. Chiswick and Van Gorder exchanged glan glances heavy with portent that this would be a really dramatic yet somehow ephemeral story. <laughs> He's gone, Gene, Van Gorder's mustache, which is nigh omnipotent, declared. <laughs> but did you hear what he said? Chizik demanded a mole. We have a mole in our midst. He rounded his desk and snatched up the red hotline phone. This is the Chiz, he announced. We have a situation. Convene the war council. Chizik took the dead silence coming from the other end to mean Albie would comply with his orders as always. <laughs> All right, I had to get a little bit in there. So there's a couple of things. All right, gang, you good? All right, so you have any questions, anything you want to throw out? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Please, ma'am. Um, so you, I, you're writing about the character, Caroline, the female character. Yeah. Uh, what do you do to prepare for writing from the standpoint of the female? Because it is very different. I know Andy Weir, I heard him talk, and he actually had um, a female friend, uh, I, I think, who read it. I was like, no, Andy, that's just complete <laughs> crap right there. And so you know, he got that perspective. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I worried about it constantly before I wrote it. But 
because Caroline is who she is, she is, um, she is a goddess. She is confident to the point of arrogant. She throws her weight around, and she, by golly, expects everybody to do what she says because she obviously knows best because she's Caroline, you know. It's like, you know. Um, Not a stereotypical female n- novel character. No, I mean. The, like a mom. <laughs> I, I guess, sure, yeah, exactly. So, so what I decided was I'm not going to try to put female stuff in here because I can't do that. Uh, I'm going to write her as a fantasy sci-fi character that has this personality. And the fact that she's female doesn't bear on things really at all. And she has a, she has a relationship with Mirana, who's also female. So my two main characters are female. But, um, but there's a whole little fellowship around them, too, of guys, too. So it's not all, it's not all female. If you're worrying, oh, this is all female book. No. Um, but their relationship, too, is very much the mentor and the, and the apprentice. And I just feel like that relationship works regardless of gender. So I basically approached it by just not even, it never became an issue. It never did. I found myself at one point writing, um, writing her and saying, you know, oh, she felt vulnerable. She was in prison or whatever. I'm like, she wouldn't say that. She'd be like, the heck with this. I'm bashing my way out of here. So it was, it was really, it, it, I guess if I had written like a normal human female character, it would have been a very different thing. But writing this Marvel Jack Kirby female, you know what I mean? Yeah. It just never, it never came up. I kept waiting for it to come up, but it never did. I mean, I appreciate the strength of the female characters. Yeah, so yeah. And I was very relieved that I didn't have to try to, because I would have had, like you say, I would have had to go get advice and stuff. And, but it never, um, I just made her a very, protect, she's very confident, she's very protective of the people under her, and you better get out of her way, man. And they took her axe. <laughs> you don't take her axe. I mean, that ticked her off to the whole story. So come on up. Otherwise, I really appreciate you guys. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.